Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. We all knew it was coming soon, the end of the Football by Numbers series. We are at number 99, and we have Larry Schmidt, the guy that started it all with number one, as we talk about the end of the line, number 99. These stories of these great heroes and more in just a moment. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my football friends, Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com here, and we're at the end of a series that we've had here on PigskinDispatch.com. The Football by Numbers, this is our last episode on it, uh, jersey number 99, and we are going to go to the person that helped start it with number ones, our first guest on uh, talking about the actual jersey numbers. Uh, Bill Schaefer came on, talked about the uniforms uh, prior to that, sort sort of a prequel. Uh, But Larry Schmidt of Gridiron Uniform Database, Big Blue Interactive, uh, he joined us to talk about number ones, and he wanted to be the one to come on and talk about 99s, the last number. Uh, Larry Schmidt, welcome back to the Pigpen. Hey, thanks for having me back, Darren. Yeah, this is a a nine-month journey that uh, you and uh, so many others have helped uh, we take and go on and talk about these greatest players in NFL history. And this has really been a, a great ride. And I appreciate uh, you, your efforts and everybody else's. It's uh, made this such a great sh- series to have. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed listening and, um, and I'm honored to be the bookend to be uh, number one and number 99. So uh, thank you. Yeah. All the volumes are in between. You are the bookends. That's for sure. <laughs> I guess where we always start off is we sort of talk about the what the Pro Football Hall of Fame has to say about number 99. And it's been kind of uncommon in the 90s. We've only had, you know, maybe one, sometimes zero uh, players that are in the Hall of Fame. But tonight we have four that were number 99, according to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And those are uh, Jason Taylor, Warren Sapp, Dan Hampton and Cortez Kennedy. And uh, I guess maybe if we want to start with them or if we want to start in a different direction. Sure. Yeah, we have three. We have three solid guys who wore number ninety nine for their entire or the majority of their career, and then we have um, we have one asterisk, so we can uh, we can save him for last. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, absolutely. I remember. I remember we had this with Forrest Gregg because he wore uh, numbers when I did number seventy nine. He wore seventy nine for his one season in Dallas, where he only played like three or four games. Yeah. But you know, he wore number ninety nine, and and he had a big year wearing that number. So we'll definitely give him his due. Yeah, and, and listeners, don't let it fool you that there's only four in a Pro Football Hall of Fame because there are some players. I, I think we're probably got at least two or three that are probably in the Pro Football Hall of Fame in the next ten years, probably. There's, and there's uh, two guys playing right now who definitely will be. And there's a, another guy with a retired number that's not in the Hall of Fame. So 
We've got some good players to talk about, so this is going to be fun. Uh, why don't we start with Dan Hampton? Okay. He's our, he's our most senior Hall of Fame member. That wore number 99. He played for the Bears from 1979 through 1990. And he was, uh, he was an extremely, aside from being a very talented player, um, he played on the, you know, the great 85 Bears defense. He switched back and forth between defensive tackle and defensive end a few times in his career. And he actually made the Pro Bowl at each. He played in four Pro Bowls twice. He made it as an end and twice he made it as a defensive tackle. And when he was all pro his one year in 1984, when he had 11 and a half sacks, um, he would made that from the defensive tackle position and, you know, double digit sacks as a defensive tackle in a four, three defense is uh, that's very impressive. You know, typically it's your ends that get the, the big sack numbers. And in 1986, he had a, he had a 10 sack season and that season he did that um, as an end. Yeah. Especially getting that many sacks when you have the talent that those bears defenses had during that period. They, and, they had Richard Dent was getting a lot of, ta- a lot of sacks from the end position. And, you know, he had William Perry in the middle of the line and Mike Singletary backing them up. And uh, that was, <laughs> that was a formidable group, but you know, Dan Hampton, he was as good as any of those guys. And, you know, that's why he was uh, elected to the hall of fame in 2002. And most of those years were uh, Buddy Ryan was their defensive coordinator. And it's not like he ran a, a normal defense. He had some, some crazy schemes, uh, crazy formations. And uh, that's what made the, the Bears uh, you know, be so great. It's just uh, the innovations and the talented players that they had all across that defense. And Dan Hampton was definitely uh, a yeah. centerpiece of that. Yep. He did that with a lot of um, asymmetrical um gaps with the line a lot sometimes he would come off the diamond position where he would have um you know a nose tackle and two tackles like all lined up over the you know the nose tackle would be head up over the center and then the defensive tackles would be shoulder to shoulder and they would both attack the a gap and he would have overloads with you know safe you know a safety and an outside linebacker on one side and it was just you know at that time it was new and it was chaotic and offenses just didn't know how to deal with it yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so yeah, definitely. And it helps when you have good players. It's not only scheme. You know, everything looks great on the looks great on the chalkboard, but you know, when you have the players to actually uh, execute the scheme the way you imagine it, that's uh, it's something else. Yeah, it, you know, and Hampton was he was a stud at Arkansas when he played there. Um, you know, just brought his uh, college career and numbers, and you know, jumped right in the NFL and took right off uh, very quickly, and uh, you know, had some great years. Uh, you know, four and a half sacks as a rookie. That's pretty good in the late 70s. It know. is, it is. And he so. actually, he unofficially in 1980, you know, I mentioned he had 11 and a half sacks in 1984. You know, sacks became an official statistic in 1982. But in 1980, uh, the Bears unofficially credit Hampton with 11 and a half sacks that year too. Yeah, you can't go wrong there. Uh, I, I'm not sure. Uh, John Turney, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Uh, the, I am. Uh, Pro Football Journal. He's yes. And uh, Nick Webster is, are the ones that uh, sort of did all the most of the study and the, the legwork on these uh, statistics, looking at game film, game books, yes. everything. And we, we talked to John just about a month ago. And, and what, a, what a labor of love that was. And uh, that's what Pro, Pro Football Reference is, is showing all his numbers pre-1982 now. 1960, I think, to, to 82. Yeah. So, 
we, we thank uh, him and Nick for, for those numbers because it's uh, definitely revealing on some of these great players like Hampton. Okay, so uh, I think Dan Hampton, I think we'll be in agreement that we'll want to have him on our, our list of top 10. Absolutely. Okay. I was hoping so. Okay. Now, uh, what number would you, or what player would you like to go to next? Uh, we can go to Warren Sapp next. Okay. Great player. He played for, yes, he was, especially um, in the Tampa Bay years. He was a Buccaneer from 1995 through 2003. And um, it's just worth mentioning since I am a gridiron uniform database guy, he was a, you know, he was wearing those creamsicle uniforms with Bucko Bruce when he was drafted by Tampa Bay. Um, it was only, a, I think it was his second, his second or third year they made the switch to the pewter uniforms. But uh, Warren Sapp looked great in that, uh, that creamsicle orange. And he was with the Buccaneers seven consecutive Pro Bowls, 1997 through 2003, uh, four consecutive All Pro, 1999 through 2002. Uh, 1999, he was the NFL's defensive play of the year, player of the year. He had tw- uh, another defensive tackle. He had 12 sacks. That tells you, you know, what a force he was. You know, over his, um, he played 144 games for the Buccaneers, and he had 96 and a half sacks, which is just, I don't get defensive end, tackle, linebacker. I mean, that's just incredible production. He had three times he was in double-digit sacks, 97, 99, and 2000. Um, and in 2000, he had 16 and a half sacks as a yeah. defensive tackle, which is just, it's a sack, a sack a game, plus, plus a half sack thrown in for good measure. And um, of course, when you produce like that, the Buccaneers retired his number 99. And he was um, more, so he also played um, for the Oakland Raiders from 2004 to 2007. Uh, he was still a good, you know, stout guy in the middle, stopping the run. And he's was named to two all-decade teams. He was all-decade for the 1990s and the 2000s. Yeah, absolutely. And to be that athletic and be the size he was, you know, he listed uh, yeah, he was six, a foot two, man. six foot two, 303 pounds. That's one large creamsicle, that's he, for sure. He yeah. was a wide body. He <laughs> took up a lot of space. And to, you know, to move like that, it was – I, I – I can only think of maybe two or three guys. Like he was almost like had the similar body type to William the refrigerator Perry, but he was a lot faster than Perry was. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you talk about with the Raiders that, you know, should have been on a decline at that point, 2006 is second to last season, 10 sacks that season. That's right. Yeah. He was still, he was still productive. He didn't have the huge crazy numbers that he had with Tampa Bay, but he was still a good, good solid player. And he was a contributor to those teams until he retired. Most definitely, he was. So I think uh, there's another candidate to go to go on our list here. I think uh, Warren Sapp, number two, on our list. Okay, uh, we'll talk about uh, Jason Taylor next. Let's talk about Jason Taylor. Okay. Primarily, he had a very unusual career arc. Um, he played. He had three stints with the Dolphins. You know, the first one, 1997 through 2007, um, he was played in six Pro Bowls for the Dolphins. Uh, three times he was All-Pro, 2000, 2002, 2006. Um, in 2006, he was the NFL Player of the Year. He had, in addition to 13 and a half sacks, um, he had nine forced fumbles, which is 
you know, a, cr a crazy number for one season. Some guys don't even have that in a career. Um, 2002, he had 18 and a half sacks. And over his career with Miami, 204 games played, 131 sacks. Very, very impressive production. In addition, you know, he had a nose for the end zone. He has nine career touchdowns, uh, three on interceptions, six on fumbles, which is a record for touchdowns scored by a defensive player. And I know that because one of my former favorite Giants, George Martin, used to have that record, but Jason Taylor broke it. George Martin had seven. And uh, Jason Taylor, all-decade team for the 2000s. So he also um, played one year for the Washington Redskins in 2008, went back to Miami for 2009, then made the move to the Jets in 2010, and then played one final year. He ended his career with Miami in 2011. And he was elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2017. I think, yeah, Jason Taylor must have played like with some ruby slippers because there was no place <laughs> like home and he kept ending up back in South Beach, like you said. So, yeah, yeah that's right. Wants to go to <laughs> Weather's a lot better there than New York and Washington. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. A lot better scenery, also, too. <laughs> yeah. I, I also need to add, in addition to his nine touchdowns, he also scored uh, three safeties in his career. Yeah, that's that's a big number there, too. Wow, that's, that's right. a a lot of points for a defensive lineman. Uh, yeah, I mean, nine touchdowns. Nine very, for, very... for a defensive lineman, nine touchdowns. I mean, that's more than Deion Sanders scored. You know, you always think of him returning interceptions. He returned a lot of kickoffs and punts, too. But a nine touchdowns, strictly playing defense, no special teams or anything like that. Extremely productive in more ways than once, even the, the point, right. points on the scoreboard. So, yeah, uh, Jason Taylor, I think another no-brainer uh, go on our list on our top ten. Yep. And we, I also, we also need to add, um, so he wore 99 for all those years, but one, when he was in Washington, he did switch to number 55, but okay. all the years, all the years with Miami in the one year with the jets, he was number 99. And, and you know what? That was his worst sack year of his entire career. He only had three and a half. Why did you change the number? I mean, did the Reds, I, I don't, I should have looked this up. Uh, you know, did the Redskins have a 99? If someone did, they should have given it to Taylor. I mean, you know, come right. on. So he must have had an injury or something because he only played eight games out of the 13. It was 2008 a strike year possibly? No, no, that was a full no. year. Okay, so he only started eight games, only played in 13. So not a, not a good year for Jason Taylor. Of 99. And, and, yeah. and actually that's an excellent segue to our last Hall of Famer, Cortez Kennedy. Okay, well, let's jump right in. Yeah, so Kennedy, he's our guy with the asterisk. He played with Seattle 1990 through 2000. Great career, eight Pro Bowls, three times All-Pro. He was the Defensive Player of the Year in 1992. And not coincidentally, that was the year he wore number 99. All of his career, he wore number 96. But for one year, 92, and again, Defensive tackle, 1992, had 14 sacks. He was in the Pro Bowl. He was all pro. He was defensive player of the year. Yeah. And you think that's what is, odd that he think, would change his number in the middle of his career. You know, we're 96 would, for well, two seasons, same team. Yeah. Well, he well, he did have a reason. And um, 
he was friends with another 99 that we're going to talk about, Jerome Brown with the Eagles. He died in a car accident in the 1992 offseason. So he wore Cortez Kennedy wore number 99 to honor Jerome Brown. Ah, okay. All right. Very good reason. But you, but you would think, you know, having such a big year, defensive player of the year, hey, number 99, that number works for me. I'm going to stick with it. But he went back to number 96. And he was still, I mean, obviously a very good player, bunch of pro balls. He had a, a couple of more all pros. But uh, but he did that all wearing 96. He gave up the 99. It was uh, it was one and done. Yeah. <laughs> but another, another very solid player, great player. And I, I think just uh, his one year wearing a 99, I think that may, might make him one of the uh, top 99. So I, I don't know if we want to put him on now or you want to wait to see who I, we have. I would. You know why? Because that year, 92, when he had 14 sacks, the Seahawks had a very, very, very bad year. They were 2-14. and 14. And for him wow. to have that kind of production and be named, you know, be recognized, you know, it's hard. You know, players have good years and Pro Bowl caliber years on bad teams. But typically, if, you know, you're 2-14, and 14, you're not going to get noticed and you're probably going to get snubbed. But he got all those accolades, all pro, Pro Bowl, player of the year on a 2-14. and 14. And you think 2-14 and 14, teams are pretty much running the ball on you in the second half. You're not going to have that many sack opportunities. I mean, imagine if Seattle were eight and eight and competitive teams would have been passing more. He probably could have padded that sack total quite a bit. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. If you're uh, less uh, opportunities and you're still getting the sack numbers, that's uh, having a real, real good year. So, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm convinced. Let's, let's put them on. <laughs> He's our, our fourth guy. All of our Hall of Famers are in you, our you list. You can't not put a Hall of Famer in the top 10 <laughs> unless, yeah, you have so, 11, unless you have 11 Hall of Famers. <laughs> right. Well, if he would have maybe had, you know, we're number 99 and only had like two sacks or something. And no, you know, no, he, wore, he year, did that but, number 99 proud. He yeah, never did that weird number 96. And a six is like an upside down nine, you know. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, now we're in our, our land of the, the folks not yet in the Hall of Fame. But like we said, I think that we're going to have a, a bunch of these guys uh, might be in there, a handful of them anyway. That, there's definitely two. And we have one guy who was once a senior candidate who didn't quite make it. But, you know, who knows? Maybe he'll get a second chance. But um, I'd like to start um, chronologically because I was trying to dig deep and find out who was the earliest player to wear number 99 that I can find. And I know we talked about uh, the last time I was on how it was very rare for players in the 20s and they're pretty much until the All-America Conference in 46. In the 20s, 30s, and early 40s, players didn't typically wear numbers above the mid-30s. They were, you know, single digits, teens, 20s, low 30s. But I did find in 1920 in the playing for the Decatur Stallies, a gentleman by the name of Hub Shoemake. He was a guard. He played six games for the Stallies that year. And he wore, he's the only player in 1920 who wore the number 99. Wow. You did go back in the record books there. Right, right back to the start. Now, I yeah. wish, I mean, I looked, I went through the newspaper archives. I was looking in all the Illinois newspapers. I couldn't find any press clippings on Hub, but, you know, I, I did need to mention his name. Six games, 1920, wore the number 99. 
And and that even sounds like a, a great football name of that era. You know, it hub, does. Great nicknames. Uh, it does. That's a good, that's a typical of the time, right? A blue collar, you know, he had an off season job. He was probably a cobbler. <laughs> could, could be, could be. Down in the leather. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. And actually, you know, not surprising, you know, Decatur, you know, George Hallis, he played at the university of Illinois. We know, uh, we know uh, George Hallis liked his um, Illini. Yeah, that's for sure. He had a, a pretty good one there for, for a while um, when it got out of Illinois. And he himself was from Illinois. So Yes, he was. Yes, he was. Okay. Well, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Hub. Uh, and who, who's our next one chronologically you'd like to talk about? Our next one, um, still pretty early, started playing in 1938, is Perry Schwartz. So he's the first player of some renown, someone who was well-known and highly regarded that wore the number 99. So Perry played for the Brooklyn Dodgers from 1938 to 1942. He was an end. Um, he played in four Pro Bowls, and he was two times first-team All-Pro, 1941 and 1942. And as I was going through the newspaper archives, it was interesting. Newspapers had, you know, there was no official, you know, all pro, you know, the newspaper columnists, the guys who covered football, everyone would come up with their own list. He was very, very widely regarded in, you know, papers, not just the New York papers, the Illinois papers, Wisconsin, you know, anyone who covered football regularly, they all had him ranked as the second best end next to Don Hudson. So if you're an end playing in the 1940s and you're being mentioned in the same sentence as Don Hudson, that's a pretty good compliment. You know, that's like someone in the 80s or 90s. You're the second best receiver after Jerry Rice. So Perry Schwartz was very highly regarded. Um, he was being compared to Don Hudson and the all pro everybody's all pro team from like 39, 40, 41, 42. You know, the ends were Don Hudson and Perry Schwartz. No. And, I, and I did share with you this morning, I sent you the email as I'm going through the newspapers. I did find one anomaly. So he gets a very tiny asterisk. I did find that one photo of him playing a game in 1942 where he was wearing 69 rather than his usual 99. Now, I don't know if it was a Taylor mistake, you know, the six, the nine upside down, or if his jersey got torn up and they had to give him another one because the next week, the newspaper had a picture of him wearing his number, his normal 99. But for at least one game that year, he did wear 69. Yeah, that's a well, second one we've had a, a nine upside down, isn't it? So, <laughs> I know. Well, you know, they, they're, they're pretty close. You know, it's not like a seven or a two. You have a keen eye as you're uh, scrolling through the old <laughs> well, newspaper I, articles. I, it's, all, it's all those years of looking through the newspapers for the gridiron uniform database. <laughs> the, the, sure. the little things, they jump out at me. They become big things. Well, hey, that's what makes uh, the fact-finding interesting. That's for sure. It is. It is. So, you know, like many, many players of that era, um, they had their careers interrupted for military service to fight in World War II, and Perry was one of those guys. So, you know, 1943, 44, 45, he was overseas. Um, he came back in 1946 in the America Conference with the New York Yankees, and he played one last season with the Yankees in 1946. But that year he wore number 57 rather than his 99. But the All-America Conference, you know, had that different numbering system where numbers were handed out by position. 
So ends were 50 to 59. So he couldn't wear 99. Okay. Wow. You uh, really dug in the, the old books uh, of the NFL and APFA and uh, some of the rival leagues here. To, I, to, I to try to leave that. no stone, no stone unturned. I do. I dig and I dig until I got to find at least one thing on each guy, even hub shoemake. Right. I, I knew he was from the university of Illinois. I got to find something for somebody. <laughs> <laughs> uh, great work. Great work on there. Okay. Uh, what player would you like to talk about next? Marshall Goldberg of the Chicago Cardinals. Um, We we kind of alluded to him a little bit earlier talking about the Hall of Famers. So he played for the Cardinals, um, interrupted again by the war, 1939 through 1943. He was in the military for several years, and then he came back just in time for the the run of the Cardinals, um, their championships, 46 through 48. Um, he was a multi-purpose back. He played halfback. He played fullback. Um, and the Cardinals, actually, he has uh, two numbers retired. He was a Pitt Panther. I know you're partial to the Panthers. Um, he wore number 42, which the Pitt Panthers retired. The Cardinals also retired his 99, although this year, um, with his uh, family's consent, the Cardinals did unretire number 99, so J.J. Watt could wear it this year. And Goldberg was a, he's not in the Hall of Fame, but he was a nominee as a senior candidate in 2008. But unfortunately, um, he didn't make the cut. So he's still on the outside looking in. Well, I think he's going to get a lot more press this year. I mean, he already has with what he did uh, with the publicity, the J.J. Watt asking the family yeah. and everything. So he's got a lot of uh, great publicity. So maybe that'll help him uh, the next time the seniors are up for the pro football. Yeah, that's to give him some good mojo. He has a little good karma for being um, being a selfless guy, sharing his number 99. So, yeah, maybe uh, J.J. will even uh, you know put in some good words for him. And uh, that might go a long way. (laughs) All right. So Marshall Goldberg, he's a a favorite of uh, one of our friends, uh, Joe Ziemba, who's a a big uh, Cardinals historian. He was a contributing member to the Cardinals' last championship team. Yeah, yeah. So very great player. I think 47. I'm sure Joe will be very appreciative. We we spoke about uh, Marshall Goldberg as well. Okay. Uh, So who do we want to talk about next? Uh, jumping over to the AFL, we have Ernie Ladd. He played for the San Diego Chargers from 1961 through 1965. And he also played 66 through 68. He split time with uh, Kansas City and the old Houston Oilers. So with the Chargers, Ladd, he was a four-time Pro Bowler and three times All-Pro 1961 and 1964, 1965, but as a Charger, he wore number 77, not 99, but at least it was a you know symmetrical number. But in his years with Kansas City and Houston, he did wear number 99 with both teams. Okay, very impressive work once again. Yep, and he was a defensive tackle, and you know the thing that made him unique. You know, for that era, he was an enormous man. He was six foot nine, and he typically played in the 290 pounds. I think a couple of years he was actually 300 pounds, which is, you know, for the 1960s is very unusual. That At that time, defensive tackles were probably 
265, 275 was probably considered large. So he was playing 290 and above for most of his career. That, that'd be was, pretty good size for nowadays, you know, being six it, foot it nine. Be, and yeah, it, that's a good size, good size. But, you know, at that time he was like a giant on the field and he was, yeah. very, he was very fast and athletic. He wasn't just a, a big guy, you know, clogging up space. He was a very, very agile and productive player. Wow. I'm glad you shared his story. I, I wasn't aware of him. So uh, thank you for that. Okay. Uh, who is our next 99 that we would like to talk about? The next one, jumping forward a decade, we have Mark Gastineau, who played for the New York Jets from 1979 through 1988. He was a five-time pro bowler, and he was all pro three consecutive years, 1982, 1983, 1984. He led the NFL in sacks two of those years. In 1983, he had 19. In 1984, he had 22, which was officially, you know, the sacks became official in 1982. Um, the 22 sacks in 84 was the record until Michael Strahan passed it in 2001. But unofficially, the year that the Jets' uh, famous sack exchange with uh, Joe Klecko and Marty Lyons and Abdul Salam, you know, when they became uh, a popular thing in New York in 1981, Gastineau unofficially was credited with 20 sacks. You won't find that in the record books, but it, pro yeah. it, it probably happened because I watched a lot of Jet games back then. So 20 sacks is probably, it's probably accurate. Yeah, I'm not sure if he's the first one that did it, but he's the first one that I can remember of having the, the sort of the sack celebration dance. That's right. Uh, he, I, he got I'm not sure if he had the first, but he definitely got the notoriety for it. And he's actually the reason that that rule, the, the celebrations um, were banned for a while. I think it was I think it was 1983. I remember the Jets were still playing in Shea Stadium. Uh, there was it was against the Rams. There was a bench clearing brawl because um, he had a sack. He was doing in the doing a dance. And it might have been Jackie Slater. One of the Rams uh, offensive linemen didn't like it and pushed him. <laughs> and then it was just mayhem. And the players were coming off the coming off the benches. So then there was that no celebrating rule for a for a long time after that. Yeah, that, that's when uh, the famous quote is that the NFL was the no fun league. Is what no fun league. Word. That's right. <laughs> that's right. The Redskins, the fun bunch. Uh, that was the end of that. You can you can thank Mark Astineau. <laughs> yeah. Gasso and a, a bunch of uh, wide receivers that like to do the spike dances. You know, probably uh, Billy White Shoes yeah. Johnson and uh, uh, who, who's, the one, who's the one from Washington that like to was it, was uh, it uh, Dexter Manley. Manly, right. Dexter Manly, yep. So, so uh, you know, 1984, Gastineau had the 22 sacks. His production, you know, at least sack-wise, dropped off quite a bit because that was the last year that the Jets were a 4-3 team. Um, in 1985, Bud Carson became their defensive coordinator, and he switched the Jets to a 3-4 defense. So the responsibilities of a 3-4 defensive end are a lot different than a 4-3. You know, in the 4-3 you know, you're coming off the edge, you have more opportunities to rush the passer, um, you're usually getting, you know, single block. But the, you know, the technique for a three, four end is take on two blockers and occupy them so the linebackers can make plays. So he didn't have as many, he was still a good player, but you know, the numbers, at least the sack numbers don't quite uh, reflect it because they're playing a much different scheme. There's a lot of differences for the ends in a three, four than a four, three. Now, nowadays, you know, in the modern era, I think maybe they would have took him and had him stand up and be a, called an outside linebacker. Possibly. 
the three, four yeah. use his speed and pass rushing ability, but the, some guys can't make the transition from a hand on the ground rush to That's true. hand on two feet. So it is, it is, it is different. Not everybody can do it. Yeah. So but he, tremendous player. I mean, those are just some fantastic numbers to have, you know, 20, at least twice, almost a third time. Unofficially three. Yeah. So, wow, that is just some great numbers and a great player, Mark Gastineau. So uh, we can talk about him. Six foot five, 266 pounds. Uh, yeah, that the famous uh, gangrene uh, New York sack exchange. Great, great nickname for him, too. Okay. Uh, so uh, what 99 would you like to speak of next? Um, we already mentioned him and it's a nice segue because it's another player that wore green as uh, a Jerome Brown for the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, unfor- you know, I mentioned this already. Um, unfortunately he had a short career. He played for the Eagles from 1987 through 1991. And, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, lost his life in the summer of 1992 in an auto accident, but he was a defensive tackle and a very, very, very good one. He was a two-time Pro Bowler, 1990, 1991, and he was all pro both of those years. And again, a tackle, you know, 1989, 10 and a half sacks, which is very good production, you know, being on the inside. And it probably helps a little bit play next to Reggie White. He's taken up some double teams <laughs> for you. But, you know, you're also racing Reggie White to the quarterback. Everyone knows Reggie White has a nose for the quarterback. And if you're getting there before Reggie, um, you know, you're accomplishing something. In that year, 1989, he also had um, five fumbles recovered, and um, the Eagles retired his number 99. Yeah, rightfully so, because uh, like you said, he was probably, you know, can you imagine if him and uh, Reggie White would have continued on that same path, you know, same team? And uh, wasn't, uh, didn't Buddy Ryan, wasn't he the head coach of the, the Eagles at that um, time, too? He was the coach through 1990 and 91. It was uh, Rich Kotite. Okay. So, so he did, uh, Buddy Ryan did have both of them on his defensive line for, for at least. He did. Yeah. Years. Yep. 88, 89, 90. That was Buddy Ryan. Yeah. Wow. One, uh, that many offensive linemen and coordinators probably had nightmares when they had to play. The oh, I, I know he gave Phil Sims nightmares. I think, uh, you know, that year with 10 sacks, I'll bet five or six of them were on Phil Sims. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> those, those guys were tough on the giants. <laughs> yeah. Wow. They're, both, they're probably getting the giants back for the, the decade earlier with the, the vicious uh, passwords that they had then. So uh, <laughs> it made Jaworski's life miserable. So. Uh, they, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, so where do we want to go to next? Uh, well, we can go from eastern to western Pennsylvania. Um, we can talk about LaVon Kirkland. He was a stealer for most of his career, uh, 1992 through 2000. And then at the end of his career, he split time with uh, Seattle, and he ended his career with the Eagles in 2002. But he was, LaVon Kirkland, uh, while he was a stealer. He was a two-time pro bowler. 1996, 1997, he was all pro in 1997. And he was, um, depending on the scheme, um, he was either an inside linebacker in a 4-3 or he was a middle linebacker in a 3-4. And, you know, the thing that made him a little different than a lot of linebackers, he was a very, very big man for a linebacker. He played in 280, 290 pounds, which is, you know, a defense alignment weight, but he's playing, you know, two-point stance behind the line, but he was 
quick and he had a lot of range for a big man. And his probably his most notable game was Super Bowl 30 against the Cowboys, you know, in a losing effort. But the Steelers defense played a great game. He had 10 tackles and he had um, a quarterback sack of Troy Aikman in that game. Yeah. One play I remember from that Super Bowl. I like to forget most of it, at least the two interceptions O'Donnell threw, but uh, it was Emmett Smith. They, the Cowboys were down inside the five. Emmett Smith was going to do one of his famous, you know, go up over the top and yeah. stick the ball over the goal line. And Kirkland sort of mirrored him and just came up and just did a vicious hit, probably about the one yard line in midair. And it was right. just uh, something. Yeah, it was no, like the bone defense crunching. played really well, you know, Emmett Smith and the running game was their bread and butter behind that offensive line. But, you know, going through my uh, research and finding notes, I, I didn't, I didn't write this down, but I'm pretty sure they, the Steelers held Dallas to, or it was Smith to something like 57 yards rushing in that Super Bowl, which is way, you know, he was probably averaging close to hundred yards, close to hundred yards a game at that time in his career. Yeah. That's you know, tough. When he got least, a lot at of, at least in the high eighties or nineties. That's when he got a lot of those yards for his uh, record setting, uh, rushing yards for the NFL record. That's for sure. He did. He did. Now, LeVon Kirkland, it's, it's weird uh, how things happen, but in the last uh, week and a half, uh, one of LeVon Kirkland's one of my favorite linebackers. I loved his size. I loved his range. I loved how, how he hit. Uh, he's right there, right behind you know, Jack Lambert's probably the only one above him in, in my uh, hierarchy of favorite linebackers. I love linebackers. Um, but so I have a Jersey of LeVon Kirkland. I have a, a white road Jersey. And I have my 17 year old daughter last week uh, called me up on a text to me at work. And she said, Hey, we have our spirit day today. We're allowed to wear jerseys of NFL jerseys. So I'm going through your closet. I'm like, okay, go ahead. <laughs> so she goes through and I come home and she just got home from school about the same time. And she's wearing 99 LeVon Kirkland. And she said, Oh my gosh, teachers were coming up to me and saying, Oh, LeVon Kirkland. I haven't heard that name in ages. So I said, wow, that's kind of cool. But same day, uh, one of my uh, associates, a fellow podcaster on Sports History Network, Aaron Harris, does the uh, Football Odyssey podcast. He uh, He's another Steelers fan. He uh, sent me an email. He goes, hey, you're really going to like uh, my podcast I'm releasing tomorrow because I'm going to leave it as a surprise, the guest I have for you. I'm like, OK, can't wait to hear it. So I get on her. He has LeVon Kirkland on. And uh, what a great conversation they have. So, nice. <laughs> so if I. Uh, LeVon Kirkland lovers out there, just go to Sports History Network, look on the Football Odyssey uh, podcast, and that's uh, a recent interview with LeVon Kirkland, who's now coaching uh, one of the teams down south, and I forget who he's coaching, but uh, he's an assistant coach, but uh, great stories he has on that, that podcast. So I have good memories of him, that's for sure. Okay, so yeah, um, where, where do we want to go next on our, our list of these great number 99s? Well, we're going to stay right where we are in Pittsburgh, and we're going to go to Brett Kiesel, who also almost wore number 99 consecutively. So LeVon Kirkland last year with the Steelers was 2000. Brett Kiesel's first year, 2002. So you had the one-year gap without a 99 on the Steelers. And Kiesel wore that number 99 up through the 2014 season, including his one Pro Bowl season in 2010. Yeah, he, he was another formidable, I mean, he was a, a lineman, uh, just a great player. And, uh, you know, a couple of great nicknames, of course, uh, having a name Kiesel, people called him Diesel. Uh, and then he got a different nickname later on in his career when he grew some, some great the facial beard. hair. 
The uh, beard. That's and, the most intimidating part of his game was that beard. <laughs> and, and he did some great things with that beard, uh, especially at the end of his career. Uh, he would get the you know, first day that they would report to training camp. Uh, he would have uh, go to a barber shop or something right before he showed for practice. And they'd take his beard off and they'd donate the beard hairs to some <laughs> charity of, of some kind. And, uh, you know, he'd give a bunch of money and the players would chip in a bunch of money, but gave good publicity to the, the charity as well. So, you know, always like that when somebody can take, uh, uh, you know, one of their features that uh, is recognized and use it for good things too. So a good, good yeah. guy. And, you know, that's not, you know, the players with the big beards now, it's, you know, it's not that uncommon. I think every team probably has one or two of them, but he was one of the first guys in the league to have that really, you know, bushy lumberjack look with the whiskers coming out of the chin strap and the face mask. There weren't, that was very uncommon. And plus his beard was red. So it really stood out. Yeah, I, th- I think probably the one now people think about is probably Fitzpatrick, the, the quarterback. Right, <laughs> right but, sure but he, was doing, it, he was doing it before Fitz. Yeah, that's <laughs> people true. People did it that's before true. Fitz. <laughs> you got to give credit where credit's due. That's true. Yeah, but uh, he had great, great players. He was one that was sad to see go when uh, he finally had to hang it up. But uh, we really enjoyed him down and watch him as a Steeler. So another a great memory lane of the, the Pittsburgh crew. Okay, uh, so what uh, player and team do we want to talk about next with these 99s? Uh, we have Chris Canty, who split his career pretty evenly between three teams. He was a Dallas Cowboy from 2005 to 2008. He was with the Giants from 2009 to 2012. And then he was with the Baltimore Ravens 2013 for two, through 2015. He, he never played in a Pro Bowl. He was never all pro, but he was a very he was a very talented and productive player in his time. And he was you know versatile as well. He played different positions in different schemes. Um, in Dallas and Baltimore, he was an end in three fours. But with the Giants, he was a defensive tackle in a four three. And he was a little bit, I think, unusual for that four three tackle in that he was um, – he was very tall. He was six foot seven and he was heavy. He was about 300, 305 pounds, but he had a very, um, a long, he looked a very lean frame. He wasn't like, he wasn't a wide body. He didn't have a lot of girth, but with that tall, you know, six, seven frame, I, I think probably, you know, was what you would more prototypical for an end than a tackle, but he still had, you know, good years for the giants and he helped them on their Super Bowl run in uh, 2011. Yeah, and that's always uh, amazes me when you have some of these big guys that are playing at defensive line because it's a game of leverage and the lower exactly uh, the lower center of gravity you get uh, you'd never think that but you, you have Ed Tutal Jones, Canty, and there's a, a litany of great uh, big tall players that played in defensive line that had great careers and I guess you know knocking down passes is a a good thing too being tall yeah he was blocking, he had very long kicks. arms to go with that tall frame but so, you know like you're saying about the leverage. You know, in a 4-3, on any given snap, uh, one of the two tackles is getting a double team. He's getting the guard and the center. Yeah, that's and so, true. You know, for, for that tall, you know, that 6-7 frame, um, that's, uh, you know, the guard or the, the center gets a shoulder underneath you, you know, but you're going backwards. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's <laughs> but, for but sure. He, but he, but he, played, he played strong at the point of attack, and he played, he played very well. He was a good player. Yeah, I, I remember who most of his career, you know, watching him you know, bounce around the AFC East for so long. And then, uh, of course, with Baltimore, I'd see him twice a year. So that's uh, right. Yeah. B- very good player. Uh, 
definitely one worth mentioning here in our, our list of great number 99s. Uh, but we we still got a whole bunch of uh, really good players who wear number ninety nine. We do. We have two current players, and um, they're 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 very good. And we're going to have a lot to say about each of them. So um, the first one would be J.J. Watt. He was a member of the Houston Texans from two thousand eleven up until last year, twenty twenty. Um, this year, he's playing for the Cardinals, um, and he's wearing the number ninety nine. Gesture from the Goldberg family. J.J. Uh, Watt is primarily a defensive end, and like we talked about with one or two guys. Sometimes he plays in the two-point stance on the edge as an outside linebacker, but he's primarily an end. He's played in five Pro Bowls and was five times All-Pro. Um, 2012, he led the NFL with 20 and a half sacks, and in 2015, he led the NFL again uh, that year with 17 and a half sacks. And he also had 20 and a half sacks in 2014. And remarkably, 20 and a half sacks, he didn't leave the NFL. Uh, Justin Houston of Kansas City had 22 that year. <laughs> and you would think 20 and a half sacks, he led the NFL three times. Well, not that he was, he was really good that year, but he was bested by a sack and a half. And um, so he almost missed two complete seasons. Um, in 2016 and 2017, back-to-back years, he only combined to play in eight games. He had two. Uh, one year, he, I think he only played two games, and then he had back surgery. The next year, he came back from back surgery. He had a knee injury. So he missed almost, you know, virtually two complete seasons. But he still came back and was a very, very good player for the Texans. And he's a three. he's one of only three players to be a three-time defensive player of the year. That was 2012, 2014, and 2015. Yeah, I just watched the game this past weekend uh, with the Cardinals playing the Browns. And he was still at almost 33 years old and unstoppable force. I, I know they showed him the one time where he made a, a tackle for loss. And, you know, they showed him walking over the sideline, taking his helmet off mouthing the words, you can't block me. You can't block yeah, me. He, can, he can still bring it. He can and, still, they, they rotate him a bit to keep him fresh. He's not an every down player anymore, but he, man, he can, he's still, when he's revved up, that motor's running. He's just about unblockable. And the dude's got uh, arms like tree trunks coming out of his shirt too. <laughs> he does. He does. And he has that man. big grace in the one arm too. <laughs> yeah. He uses it like a club. <laughs> yeah. Very powerful, great technique, uh, you know, excellent player. So uh, we could talk about him today. So he's definitely one under strong consideration. Yep. I'm still not used to seeing him in that Cardinal uniform now. No, no, that's, but they're really uh, stockpiling some good players out there. Oh, they're, they're six and out. Uh, yeah. And they just got uh, Zach Ertz this past week too. So yeah, and <laughs> better. But, but yeah. The strong gets stronger. <laughs> that, that's for sure. That's for sure. Okay. Um, I know we have a couple more. We probably want to talk about. Yep. Yes. Speaking of unblockable, Aaron Donald, who just did a number on my Giants a couple of days ago. (laughs) (laughs) He does a number on everybody, though. Yeah. Well, yeah. So shows no partiality. A little fresh for me. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of Phil Sims taking like five or six sacks, uh, Daniel Jones, I think, is still seeing number 99 in his nightmares. So um, Aaron Donald, he's been with the Rams since uh, 2014. He's another hybrid guy. Sometimes he plays end. Sometimes he plays tackle. Um, seven Pro Bowls and counting. I'm sure it's going to be eight in a couple of months. 
uh, six times all pro. He's been all pro every year since 2015. Um, I'm pretty sure that's going to be seven <laughs> by the end of this year. Um, he led the NFL in sacks in 2018. He had 20 and a half. Um, this young man has already been named to the 2010s all decade team. And he's the second of three players to be the defensive player of the year, which he's won in 2017, 2018, and last year in 2020. And um, I wouldn't be surprised to see him uh, win a fourth one, if not this year, sometime very soon. And he'll be the leader in that category. He'll separate that three-way tie. Well, I'm a, I'm a little bitter about him getting it last year. I mean, he played, had a great season, but I, I think uh, JJ's brother, TJ Watt, I think uh, he actually beat him in every category, the, the top three categories they look at. He had more sacks. He had more tackles for loss and yeah. quarterback hits than Aaron Donald. So I, I was a little surprised that Aaron Donald got over TJ Watt, but hey, I'm biased. He, he wears black and gold. <laughs> with, uh... <laughs> no, it's a good argument. It's a good argument. It has a lot of merit. And, uh, but I'm, and not, I can't, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm not disagreeing with you. And I, I can't complain about Aaron Donald, though, because he was a great Pitt Panther, too. So <laughs> that's right. Player. That's right. Your second Pitt Panther. Yeah. So have some good 99s going in there. That's for sure. That's right. From the city of Pittsburgh. So, so. with all these guys who've won the um, Defensive Player of the Year three times, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the, the first one to do it. Did not wear number 91. But Lawrence Taylor, he won the Defensive Player of the Year, 1981, 1982, and 1986. Okay. And since since tied by J.J. Watt and Aaron Donald. And again, I'm pretty sure Aaron Donald is going to ha- have a fourth one sometime soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully not this year, because I think uh, T.J. and some others, a couple other players are really off to some yep. hot starts too. Miles Garrett. Uh, some great players we have in the NFL on the defensive side of the ball. So a lot of competition, but Aaron Donald is definitely at the, the top of those uh, lists. That's for sure. Okay. Uh, do you have anybody else that you want to mention? Um, that's it. Those are my two current, my two current players. And, you know, we'd like to talk about who's going to be in the hall of fame. Um, I think JJ Watt and Aaron Donald are, um, as no brainer as it gets, they should both be first ballot slam dunks, uh, Boston Canton. Okay. I, I totally agree there. And I'm going to probably uh, with your permission, I'm going to put them as our fifth and sixth players you, on our you, top 10 list. You absolutely have my, my permission, put them up there. <laughs> okay. I, Undisputed. I, I think uh, Mark Gaston has got a shot uh, at getting in Definitely. The, the, the hall of fame. So and I think Definitely. on our top 10 list as a, We'll put him in. He's our seventh player in. Especially when you consider, you know, I mean, the switch from the three four to from the four three to the three four, it really affected his statistics a lot. His, you know, his sack numbers. He had twenty two in nineteen eighty four, and I'm just going to take a look real quick. What did he do in nineteen eighty five? I know I have. Yeah, nineteen eighty five. Gastineau had. We had 13 and a half. That's pretty good for a three, four end. But then the next year he had two, then he had four and a half in his last year. He only had seven. So, you know, he, he, his last two years in the four, three, 19 sacks, 22, then he dropped to 13 and a half. And then he was single digits the rest of the way. You know, if he played four, three end, those other years, I, you know, I'll bet that sack number would have been a lot higher. 
Well, he also had Father Time uh, grabbing his ankle and slowing him down a little bit. A little bit, a little bit. Yeah, I see he had a couple of games missed, too. He only played seven games in 1988. But, you know, he was still, you know, regardless what position, what scheme, he was still a good player. Yeah, very productive uh, when he was on during his prime. So I think that makes him one of the best 99s ever uh, in NFL history. Okay, so we have uh, three more that we need to get on this top 10 list. And there's some players that we talked about that I think are probably some good candidates that we can, yep. talk, you know, uh, you know, we talked about Marshall Goldberg, uh, LeVon Kirkland, Perry Schwartz, uh, Ernie Ladd. Yes. Perry Schwartz was going to be my surprise pick. I really, I really want to, I want to put him up there as one of my top 10 number 99s, you know, Perry Schwartz, he played for the Brooklyn Dodgers. He was on so many all pro teams you know, alongside Don Hudson, you know, Don Hudson was the Jerry Rice of the 1930s and 40s. So if you're being, you know, second to Don Hudson, I mean, you're probably the best in any other era. And and he he was a two way, you know, he was a two way player. You know, he led the NFL in yards per catch a couple of times. But, you know, looking through those newspaper pictures, I sent you a couple today. There was one of him playing defense where he was forcing a fumble. You know, those he's leading the NFL in yards per catch but he's also playing defense. Yeah. Two-way play. Yeah. I, I totally agree with you, especially when you gave, gave the four pro bowls and uh, I think he had, he had a couple all pros too. Yeah. I, I right. think he should be on that list. So yeah. So That's he's right. our eighth. And he wasn't, he wasn't affected by scheme, right? Everybody was playing the single wing then. Um, but you know, he had his career like so many people, you know, of that era interrupted by world war two. He had a big chunk of his career taken out and he lost, you know, I think four years. And then he came back and played one year in the All-America Conference. But, you know, definitely Perry Schwartz. He's one of my 10. Okay. I, I agree with you there. And I think, uh, you know, Jerome Brown's another one from, his, you know, he only had that short career, five seasons with the 99. But, man, they were, that's some productivity there, too. Quality, quality over quantity. He was, um, he, he was a force. And, you know, I watched the Eagles, uh, you know, play the Giants twice a year. And, you know, they were on on TV playing the, you know, in the NFC East almost every week with Madden and Summerall and he and Reggie White, they were, they were a heck of a tandem. Yeah, I totally agree there. Now the, the 10th one, uh, 10th position, you know, Chris Canny is another one that we, we mentioned. Uh, don't want to fail to mention him and uh, Kiesel. Uh, but I think uh, I would lean towards our 10th one as being a guy that's got his number retired with the oldest franchise in, in the uh, National Football League. That's who I had, Marshall Is Goldberg. It? Okay, all yes. right. Well, we're on, we're seeing eye to eye. We're, you know, I know it's no fun when you don't have controversy, but the <laughs> agreements are fun too. I'm a peace loving man. I don't want to. I don't, I don't want to argue. <laughs> I don't want to raise my voice. So, we're, we're sharing a brain, though. That's good. That's good. Yeah, I, I, that's probably scary for you sharing a brain with me, but. Uh, <laughs> Well, we think alike. Yeah, you might have to get <laughs> examined. Why you keep inviting tomorrow. me back? That's why you know I did number one. You had me back for ninety nine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You might want to call a doctor about this tomorrow, Larry. This, uh, this might be frightening. Okay, so hey, that, that is a pretty good uh, top ten. Let me just go through again who we have on here. Uh, we have uh, the four Hall of Famers: uh, Warren Sapp, Jason Taylor, Dan Hampton, Cortez Kennedy. J.J. Uh, Watt, Aaron Donald, we think are going to be in the Hall of Fame uh, very soon, five years after their career is over. Uh, Mark Gastineau, we think someday will be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Marshall Goldberg with that 99 retired with the Cardinals. Uh, Perry Schwartz, uh, you know, the top end in the NFL at his era next to Don Hudson. And uh, Jerome Brown, a very productive uh, defensive player that uh, 
lost his life a little too early and didn't get to finish his NFL career. Uh, wonder what he would have done, you know, continuing that. So great top 10. Uh, what a way to, to finish off this uh, series that we've had. It's been so much fun with some excellent players and an excellent guest uh, who's done a lot of hard work, Larry. And I really appreciate you, you helping out here today. Oh, my, it, it's always my pleasure. I, re, I really enjoy you having me on. So thank you. Well, what, what projects do you have going on in uh, your football life, uh, either on the Gridiron Uniform Database or, or on Big Blue? Uh, always, <clears throat> there's always something going on there. You know, we're keeping up with the current season. We also had um, a couple of surprise um, historical finds of late. I, we found a good one for the the New York Yankees of the AFL of 1941. Um, very surprising uniform find with them where we were changing colors and finding stripes. And um, that's up on the website now. And um, I also want to mention, um, because this comes up, a lot of people ask me on the database, um, the decade of the 1920s, 1920 through 1929, when we were re-platforming the site, um, those got lost from the main page. And those old teams like the, um, you know, the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets and, um, the Canton Bulldogs, you couldn't access them from the main page. You could only do it by going to the defunct franchises and then going through there. But they were just restored this past weekend. So you can view every team, every uniform very easily to navigate from 1920 all the way up to uh, last year. So the 1920s are back there on the front page and it's it's all just a click away. Yeah. Uh, and if you're listening to this, we, we have each and one of every one of our podcasts. Uh, we, we thank a gridiron uniform database. Uh, it's in our show notes. There's a link to them on every single episode of Pixie and Dispatch. So make sure you check their uh, great website out. They share so much with us with, you know, Larry and Bill and, and Tim, we appreciate all that they do to, to help us uh, do our jobs here too. So, uh, you know, fantastic website. So make sure you check it out. And how about on the, uh, the Giants uh, side of things, how are things going? Um, currently, not too good, but I'm working on an article from when the <laughs> Giants were good from 1990. So that's, um, you know, it's fun to look back and uh, remember when, uh, you know, the Giants uh, really were Giants. <laughs> <laughs> well, I you wasn't know, talking depend. about how the team was performing. I was talking more about that. I know, I know, I know, I <laughs> know. Well, I told you, have me thinking about Aaron Donald and boy, he really tore the Giants a new one this past week. So I'm still not over it. It's only Tuesday. I start looking forward to the next Sunday on Wednesday. So tomorrow morning, I'll feel a lot better and I'll be thinking about the Carolina Panthers and <laughs> looking forward, not back. <laughs> uh, Carolina's taking a couple on the chin too this year. So maybe the Giants will have some uh, luck against Yeah, them. maybe we can win one. We'll see. <laughs> and I don't think uh, McCaffrey's playing in this game yet either. So takes away part of their offense or a big part we'll of their see. offense. The, the, the defense isn't doing too good. So we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> They could make his backup look like an all pro. You never know. <laughs> yeah, that, that's true. That's true. Well, well, Larry, I appreciate you once again. Uh, thank you so much for, for helping on all the episodes that you did and especially for this one. And uh, we really appreciate your research and your, your due diligence on digging up these great stories and honoring these, these excellent players in football history. So thank you. Oh, thank you again. Thanks for having me. And, you know, I, I probably say this every time you have me on, but, you know, I really, really, really love, you know, the, the early, you know, 1920 through, you know, the 1940s, I think it's just such an interesting era of football with the strategy. There's just so many great players and coaches and who were innovators and 
yeah, it's sad, but they kind of get overlooked and forgotten about. And whenever you like, you know, you watch the NFL network, top 10, this top 100, that, you know, it's, they pretty much cover the Super Bowl era and everything prior to that. There's just so many, so many great players and it's just so interesting. And that's really, you know, it's what I love to do. And, you know, I appreciate you um, giving me an outlet to uh, share something that I love. So thank you. All right, Larry. Well, we hope to have you on real soon in a, a different capacity. One of our other series uh, we'll talk about, because I love talking about those 1920s, 1930s teams too. That's one of my, my favorite eras for sure. So, hey, until the ne- next time, Larry, thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Hey, are you ready for some football? Some fantasy football? How about some daily fantasy football? Silly questions, right? Of course you are. You're ready to talk some smack and win some cash every Sunday and Thursday and Monday and whenever there's football games. The Sports History Network invites you to play your daily fantasy football this season at thrivefantasy.com. Thrive Fantasy offers hundreds of thousands, millions in cash every day on NBA, MLB, PGA Golf, Cricket, Esports, and of course, NFL football. Every week during the 2021 NFL season, Thrive Fantasy has pool play contests and heads-up matches with prizes of all sizes, and even free play contests for real money. Sign up with Thrive Fantasy today to get a 100% match bonus on your first deposit for up to $100 in free daily fantasy football play. Visit sportshistorynetwork.com slash thrive, that's T-H-R-I-V-E, or enter promo code S-H-N when depositing at the cashier. Join Thrive Fantasy today, earn cash prizes, and support great shows like this at the Sports History Network. Now that's a win-win-win situation for you to kick off your own NFL season. We're taking a peek over at the chains and the down marker. It's fourth and long. We're going to have to punt the ball and get on out of here, but we'll have another series tomorrow for your football history headlines, so be sure to tune in. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. Pigskindispatch.com is a proud affiliate of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? 
I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast. <laughs>